Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. So I have a a friend that just won a tallest Christmas tree contest. Tallest Christmas tree contest. I thought to myself, how can you top that? (laughs) Oh, and this is my favorite of the day. All right, here, this is as good as it gets right here. Uh, A gingerbread man went to the doctor complaining of a sore knee. So the doctor said to Mr. Gingerbread Man, he said, have you tried icing it? told you it doesn't get any better than that. All right. Um, You know, I'm going to be honest. um, It is Christmas season, so the Sunday before Christmas, I'm going to preach from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So when it comes Good Friday, I'm going to preach on the wise men. (laughs) Uh, We're going to look a little later at the story of Jesus in Gethsemane from the book of Where's it at? The book of Matthew, if you want to open there with me, Matthew 26. We'll wind up there in a couple minutes. But right now, we're going to read our Christmas verse to attach this to Christmas, if you will. And if you're a pastor, you understand that uh, we got about 130 verses that we have to preach from every year. Uh, Anyway, it's fun stuff. Would you stand to your feet with me in honor of God's Word? Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven, and on earth, here's our key word for today, on an earth what? Peace. Peace. Can you all say it with me? And on earth what? Peace. Peace. On whom his favor rests. So when God has favor on you, you have? Peace. It sounds good, right? God has favor on me, I have peace. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today is peace and how to have it. And uh, yeah, I hope you'll hang in here with me. All right, everybody, we're going to say a prayer first. So let's do this one first. Jesus, I pray that you would bless this uh, message, bless the sharing of these truths of Scripture. And I pray that our hearts would be open to receive your peace in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we used to do something when I was a kid, all right, because I grew up like real hippie age, all right? I was a little kid in the real hippie age, and they used to do something. Peace, man. <laughs> so you, you, you got to channel your inner hippie today. Well, thankfully not all of it, because you took a shower, I hope, this week. Anybody understand real hippies? They didn't shower. Yeah, it was nasty. Anyway, so turn to somebody before you're seated today. Look at them and go, peace, man. All right. God bless you. Maybe seated up here online. Peace, man. All right. So the angels promise peace if God's favor rests on you. They promise peace. But you ever been in a situation that robbed you of your peace? I realize I haven't shared a lot about this because it's too recent history. But um, a couple years ago, we, uh, we hired a company to build this building for us. So we hired a company, and I will not mention Satan's name, but they were a design-build company, and 
Uh, it's a dirty word in our house. It's, you're just not allowed to say it because what happened was we got the design, we finally worked through the design part, and we had a $2.2 million loan and we had $700,000 cash. All right? And we wound up building a little bit over a $4 million building. Hold on. Math does not equate. I remember when Sean May was praying, and he stopped me. It was back in the old building. He stopped me by the doors back there one day, and he said, God's been speaking to me to pray for a million-dollar miracle. <laughs> and I'm praying that a million dollars comes in. And I want you to know, when you pray big prayers, sometimes God does big answers. So during the time period that we had a, uh, let me see, uh, a $2.9 million budget, we built a $4.3 or $4.4 million building. Because God gave us supernatural, divine, miracle dollars to make it happen. Now, I don't know if you've ever been through a situation where your budget is three and you need four. But that's rough, especially when the people you hire, you find out after you've signed the contract that they're thieves and liars. And I remember the day, we were just a couple of months into the process, and I remember the day when I realized that they had cut about uh, between $150,000 and $180,000 worth of promised items out of the, what they were telling us they were going to deliver. Now, $180,000 may not be much to you, <laughs> but when you're like me, and I take very seriously that every dollar God entrusts us with at this church is a stewardship that I have to give an account to God for, I was not happy. All right? So we wound up shutting down the entire job. We wound up, my goodness, there was so much that happened. Called lawyers into it. I, luckily, I didn't sign one document, so we did have some, some law precedents to fight against them. We got the $180,000 out of them, but yet they fought us the entire way, giving us bills that were over the price contractually we were supposed to have, and we fought every day, I fought every day with them. On top of that, doing the building 16 hours a day, fighting every day for the better part of two years of my life. In the middle of those two years, my dad died as well. My dad was, yeah, anyway. So because of the fighting, because of the management, because of the extra hours, because of the stresses of a church that was saying, why are you doing the building? And then there's other people going, yay, let's build the building. And then there's other people going, anyway, it doesn't matter. I, um, I hit the wall. I'm not sure if you've ever, you know, most pastors that build churches, over 90% of them leave within two years. Did you know that? You know why that is, don't you? Because it's tough. And this was an extra tough one. And I actually, I was telling my staff the other day, they didn't realize, but I actually, um, about, about a little bit over a year into it, I had my first panic attack. And I'm not sure if you've ever lain uncontrollably shivering where you can't stop your body and you can't stop. But it's not a good feeling to be totally out of control, out of yourself. And hopefully, yeah. And, and you know what? It was funny because my head was telling me, this is just your body reacting to stress, but I couldn't stop my body. And by the way, after that, I lost feeling the left side of my face for over three months. 
And I still have a heart condition to this day that I'll have the rest of my life because of that. Peace. I knew every step of the way that God was telling us to do it and it was his will for us to do it. And he was even providing miraculously to do it. But still, I was being trashed. Peace. Anybody ever know it's God's will for you to do something, but then it just totally destroys you? <laughs> uh, it's called getting married. <laughs> oh, and you've got to be married more than a decade to know what I'm talking about. God did not design marriage to make you happy. I'm sorry. He designed it to make you holy. That's two different things, but we'll talk about that some other time. But I know it's God's will, and God's working a miracle, a million-dollar miracle in the middle, but yet the stress has caused my body to go haywire on me, and I will bear the scars of that for the rest of my life, and there's nothing I can do about it. What do you do when peace doesn't look like you think peace should look like? It helps to define what peace is. Hebrew for peace is a, is a Hebrew word named shalom. And shalom means wholeness, soundness, prosperity, or well-being. And the key there is wholeness. Wholeness. The Greek is erine. It means tranquility or favorable circumstances without conflict. But can I give you a definition of peace that I think is a little more biblical? Peace is the absence of strife, both from without and within. And what I want to focus on is sometimes you can't deal with the stressors without so you have to learn to live at peace within, even though there are stressors without. Peace. There are two main sources of lack of peace. One is external. Life circumstances that are out of control, like sickness or death or accidents. Or when immoral people affect your life, like hiring a contractor that has Christian in the name, but they didn't act it. Right? There's things that happen to you, and then there are things that are beyond your control when immoral people have affairs on you and you're married. People lie about you on a job and you can't do anything about it. There are external things you cannot fix, and they bring a lack of peace into your life. How can you be a person of peace on whom the favor of God rests if it's contingent solely on what is happening to you. And I want to tell you that peace sometimes doesn't happen without, but it can always happen within. So a lot of what robs our peace is an internal peace. We're not at peace within because we are at conflict with ourselves. By the way, you cannot live in true peace as long as you are crossways with reality. If you are against reality, you cannot live in peace. And this, this lack of peace comes because we think wrongly about situations. I, I, uh, I had a boy on the basketball team the other day, and uh, his character is totally different than an action that he did. You know, his character, he's not a quitter, he's not a powder, he's not a whiner, but he did a quitter, powder, whiner action. Right? And I went up to him after the game because everybody's sort of yelling at him. I went up to him after the game. I threw my arm around his shoulder. I said, so tell me, what were you thinking when you did that? 
And he gave me a thought process that was crossways with reality. And I said, your character is not you're a quitter whiner, but your actions were that you're a quitter and whiner because you were thinking wrongly about the situation you were in. This is so good. Because some of us, sometimes we have wrong behaviors because we think wrongly about life. Can I give you a few? All right. This is from another book I'm reading. 66% of practicing Christians agree with this quote. You ready? Two out of three of you agree with this. The highest goal for life is to enjoy it as much as possible. I want to ask you a question. Where did you come up with that definition of life? You did not come up with that from the Bible. You did not come up with that from the example of Jesus. And you definitely did not come up with it from the example of Jesus and the apostles and the church fathers. You came up with that definition from this culture that says, I just have to be happy. So we do things that don't make us happy trying to be happy. Come on now. All right, so I'm going to read it again. The highest goal for life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Can I tell you what the highest goal for your life is? Y'all ready for this? This is scripture. Whoever wants to be my disciple, now Jesus said this, they must deny themselves, must do what? Hold on, that doesn't sound like make me happy. Deny yourself and do what? Take up your cross. I don't know about you, but a cross does not make me happy. A cross makes me dead. You know, can I be magnanimous? I was praying to God the other day, and I was like, God, I, I appreciate what Jesus did on the cross. I appreciate it a lot. You know, one 28, 24, 48-hour period, he suffered greatly. I understand he carried the sins of the world, and, and I can never understand that. But you did that in 24 hours, and you've asked me to pick up my cross for 40 years. Anybody ever think like that? God, you're asking too much. Well, you see, if, the, if your worldview is that your highest good is to be happy, then you will do all kinds of things that are cross-reality against God and the truth. When Jesus said, your goal should not to be happy, it should be to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, because if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you'll lose your life for the sake of Christ, then you'll truly get life. And the real life is to dying to your flesh, not trying to appease it. How about this one? 75% of Christians, 75% of practicing Christians, 75% in America, according to Barna's study, that's three out of every four of you, said the best way to find yourself is to look inside yourself, to figure me out. That is exactly crossways with the truth of Scripture and reality. Because you know the best way to find yourself is to find God and to hear what he has to say about you. Because if you start finding yourself, the, the quote from Jeremiah is true. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and beyond cure. If you follow your heart, you're going to go down a dead-end road. You need to follow God's heart. Where did you come up with these ideas? How about this one? 91% believe, 9 out of every 10 of you, believe that you have to be true to yourself. Galatians 5.24 says, those who belong to Christ have done what? Crucified, Crucified their self. 
You don't need to be true to yourself. You need to be true to God. And God will help you be your best self. But your best self, when you're focused on you, you're focused on the wrong thing. So when we convince ourselves that what we're doing isn't wrong and what we're thinking isn't wrong, and we convince ourselves that this social culture we swim in, we're like fish. You know, little fishy swimming in water? Swimming in water? Little fishy swims in water, and it doesn't know that it's swimming in water because all it knows is water. But like you, you you breathe air, right? When you go to swim like a fishy in the water, what happens to you? You go to take a deep breath, then somebody's got to pump your lungs out, right? Because little fishy swims in water because that's what fishies live in. But you are a human. You breathe air, not water. Am I correct? The problem is, is that our culture has us as human beings trying to live in the water of sin and degradation and me first. And we are not made for that. We're meant to live in the air of God's freedom rather than in the cultural water of me first. And the best thing you can do is to be what God made you to be, which is to embrace his truth about your life rather than this cultural statements about who you ought to be. So truth is what corresponds to reality. If we convince ourselves that what we're doing isn't wrong and we know it is, we're at cross with ourselves and we're at cross with the reality, then there can be no peace because there's no wholeness with me and wholeness with God. So truth is when you, your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions correspond with reality. And when we sell ourselves on actions that are against reality, it actually hurts us. Because the doctor bill comes due, the spouse opens the browser, the cop pulls you over, the doctor shows you the test results, the boss gives you the pink slips, And the reality of your unwholeness becomes clear in that moment and reality confronts you. You realize there is no peace. And that's what's been going on wrong inside of you for a while is that God made you one way and you're trying to listen to the cultural milieu in which we live and you think it's okay. The cultural error we believe is filled with truisms that rob us of our peace. Can I tell you a story? It's in this book I'm reading. This book will mess with you no matter what. Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. If you're a right-winger, he's going to mess with you. If you're a left-winger, he's going to mess with you. If you're a centrist like me, he's going to mess with you. You know why? Because he's going to call out our lies. It's a good book. You should read it. He tells a story about a guy named Woody Allen. Anybody ever remember Woody Allen? Woody Allen was a filmmaker in the, what, the 20th century. So in the 1900s, he was a filmmaker. And good old Woody Allen, he, um, he was having a relationship with a girl named Mia Farrow. She was another actress, and he was having a relationship with her. Y'all remember that story? So Woody Allen, Mia Farrow, they were all over the tabloids for a long time back in the 80s. And Mia Farrow, before she met Woody Allen, had adopted a girl from Korea by the name of Soon Yi Previn. Now, Sunni Previn was, um, was about seven years old when Mia Farrow adopted her. And just a couple of years after that, Woody, she split up from her husband and she started hanging out with Woody Allen. Well, Woody Allen, um, eventually their relationship, Mia Farrow and Woody Allen, their relationship went south and uh, they had split up. 
And, uh, and Mia Farrow one day walked into his house to see naked pictures of Sun Yi on his mantle. So this girl, this Sun Yi, by the way, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow had a baby together. And they raised Sun Yi as like he was one of their daughters. And they had a kid together. And this is before me too, trust me. <laughs> uh, Woody Allen was having an affair with his, for all intents and purposes, stepdaughter. And then they got married. He was 56, she was 21. Basically a stepdaughter. And they got married. So, there was an interview with him in 1992, and the interviewer did a great job. He was like pushing Woody, trying to say, Woody, did you do anything wrong? Woody, is there anything wrong about this relationship? Woody, is there anything wrong? And that's where the famous line you probably heard over and over and over again, and it became a part of our culture, and I just want to reveal to you where this line came from. The heart wants what it wants. That was his answer. Follow your heart. Love is love. The heart wants what it wants. Sounds pretty perverted and sick, doesn't it? 56-year-old marrying his stepdaughter? Ooh. Messed up. The heart wants what it wants. See, what happens is when you're crossways with reality, you will justify it by whatever means is culturally acceptable. And that's what Woody Allen did. Can I read you another quote? I told you this book will mess with you. Here's one more quote. Hey, you deserve to be happy. Anybody ever say anything? Like, I, I'm reading his words. These have never been mine, okay? Hey, you deserve to be happy. Let's face it, says their brain. You haven't been happy in your marriage for years. Your wife just isn't the right fit for you. You know, it happens. You married way too young before you were self-aware, and this marriage isn't what you hoped it would be. But if you divorce her, I'm sure there's somebody else who would be a better fit and would make you happy. People make these justifications. I've heard them a lot as a pastor over the years. Ignatius of Loyola said this. He defined sin as this. You ready? The unwillingness to trust what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. See, so I'm going to talk to you about how to have peace and how you can live at peace with yourself and with God. So can we do this? First of all, peace is a promised gift of Jesus. Y'all read that, right? We read that in the passage this morning, right? That peace will come on those whom God favor dwells? Yeah, but there's a problem with that because can I quote the very Jesus who's supposed to bring us peace? Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Do you think I came to bring you peace? No. I tell you division. There is coming a time very, very soon where if you choose to not live crossways with God, you will be hated and persecuted by our culture. Jesus said it would happen. By the way, it's happened all throughout church history, right? We have things like Fox's Book of Martyrs, and they didn't get in there because culture and them got along. Why is it that you think all of a sudden that you're going to follow Jesus and everything's going to be hunky-dory all the time? No, you will live at crossways with the culture because if you're at peace with God and at peace with yourself, the culture's going to think you're weird. And by the way, they're not doing a very good job 
at being happy. <laughs> you don't want me to quote the latest stats, do you? The more our culture lives crossways with God, the more unhappy they become, but yet somehow they've got it all figured out when God told us how to do it a long, long time ago. So Jesus promised that he would give us peace. Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth peace toward those whom his favor rests. So if you're not at peace with the world out there, where are you at peace? You're at peace with yourself and you're at peace with God. Amen. That is wholeness. So John chapter 14, 27, Jesus did say this, peace I leave with you, I leave you my peace. But I don't give you the peace that the world does. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives you. So there is a different kind of peace when you're with Jesus. And this is the peace that is lasting and sustainable. And he said, do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid because Jesus has the kind of peace that you can be right with you and right with God. This peace... <laughs> I struggled to put this portion of my sermon. Would y'all give me like a two-second left turn here? I was reading Haggai. It's always a good idea to read the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, there's a prophecy because what happened was this. There was a first temple and there was a second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. And it ended in the Babylonian captivity and this temple was destroyed. And then the Babylonian captives came back and they were building a second temple. And this second temple wasn't very big. It wasn't very pretty. It wasn't very glorious. You remember Solomon built the big, beautiful temple. And they're like, God will always protect us. And then the Babylonians destroyed it. So they built a second temple. And when they did so, the people are looking at the second temple. They're saying this isn't very much. Now, the second temple lasted from the, the exiles returning and building it in the book of Haggai, Nehemiah, and Ezra until 70 AD after Jesus. So Jesus walked in and was actually tried in. And that was where his court was with the Sanhedrin was in this temple, the second temple. Haggai wrote about the second temple when it was small, when it was inauspicious. He wrote, the glory glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord. So there's a promise. The first temple didn't declare, there was no peace with God there. There was just sacrifices. In the second, there's the same old sacrifices, but there's a promise that one day there's going to be peace because something's going to happen here in Jerusalem around this temple that will bring us peace. And we read about that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, speaking of Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace by his own blood shed on the cross. So there's a promise that there will be peace in this temple, and Jesus fulfilled that promise. So apparently the peace of Jesus isn't dependent on outside circumstances because this peace was purchased through death. I'm going to say this one more time. Apparently, true peace isn't dependent on outside circumstances. True peace is a freedom from strife with God and self. When me and God aren't living crossways with each other, when me and me aren't living... Come on, anybody ever argue with yourself? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. It's really hard to have peace in your life when you're arguing with yourself all the time. Or when you're always scared that somebody's going to find out. 
Oh, you've never lived there, but I have, because I've been stupid. Right? Anybody ever live afraid that somebody's going to find out what you said, what you did, where you went? <laughs> There's no peace. But if you live in such a way that you can sell the parakeet, the family parakeet to the town gossip, you might be living all right. That's good right there. All right. We can live in conflict with sin, flesh, and circumstances, Satan, and the world system, and still live in peace. I'm going to say that again. We can live. We can live in conflict with sin, flesh, circumstances, Satan, the world system, and still live in peace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which transcends your understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So regardless of the situation, you can still have peace. How do we get that peace? Jesus is the perfect example. So let's look at how peace comes. Peace comes from submitting to God's will. Peace comes when you submit to God's will. Perfect example of this is Jesus. So Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, taught us how to have peace in the middle of turmoil. Now our culture tells us that peace is found when we find a way out. But Jesus gives us peace to find a way through. Peace is not in finding a way. Why do you think the divorce rate is now topping 50%, pressing towards 60%? Because we have this mentality in our culture that the moment I'm not happy, I need to find a way out. And what Jesus wants us to do is to find a way through. And when external circumstances come at you hard and heavy, a lot of us want to find a new job or find a new career or find a new this or find a new that. But you know what God wants us to do? He wants us to make the old new where we are. It's not to find a way out, but to find a way through. I'm preaching a whole lot harder than the amens I'm getting. So, all right, Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. And, you know, you know I, I say that sort of joking. But come on, I'm not giving you fluff and stuff this morning. This is stuff that'll get you through life when everything goes crossways. Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus went to his disciples' place called Gethsemane, he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, this is the night before Jesus was betrayed, before he was crucified, before he was beaten, before he died. So he took uh, Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Sounds like he's sort of struggling with peace. And going a little further, he fell down with his face to the ground and he prayed, Father, if it's possible. Can we stop right here? This is a power word. Throughout this, this text, possible is a power word, dunamis. It's a power word. And when I was reading the Greek, it really came alive to me that what's going on here is there's a power struggle going on. Jesus is saying, I want my will. And if, it's, if you got the power, God, and you love me, Father, you love me, Father, and you have all power, then make another way. Anybody ever prayed that? If you love me and you really are God with all power, then I wouldn't have to blank. Anybody ever pray a prayer like that other than me? Come on. Do me a favor. Let's, let's be real. How many have ever prayed a prayer like that? Show me. Okay. The rest of you, you're not really honest with yourself or God or you, hadn't, you don't pray. Because the fact of the matter is this. When it gets rough, you're going to say, God, you love me. And God, you have all power. You should fix this. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. So you're not wrong when you pray like that. 
He's saying, fix it. And then what did he say, though? May this, Father, if it's possible, if you have the power, if you love me, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Hmm. So he submitted. Hmm. Let's go on ahead. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. So the disciples that were about to, let me see, deny him, run away. Peter was about to deny him three times, cut off a dude's ear. Judas, one of his other disciples, had already betrayed him. Man, he's in a rough go. He said, couldn't you keep watching, pray with me for one hour? And he asked Peter. And, and he, then he said, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's my autobiography right there. And then he said, he went away a second time and he prayed again, Father, if it's not possible. Did you notice the slight shift there? The first time he said, if it is possible. The second time after praying, praying for God's will, he says, if it is not possible. In other words, he knew it wasn't possible. And now he's going back. First time he was beseeching God. The second time he's trying to talk himself into believing what God had already spoken to him. Father, if it's not possible, I know it's not possible for this cup to be taken away from me unless I drink it. Oh, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. <laughs> You've never experienced that. So he left them and he went away once more and he prayed a third time saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples. We'll talk about this phrase in just a second. And he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The hour has come. So, two things we learned from this story, super duper quick. Number one, trust God. To have peace like Jesus, you need to do two things. You need to trust God. Second thing you need to do, all right, let, let's back up. Trust God. Jesus was 33 years old. Did you know that? Do you know when he said he was going to die? You know what he was giving up? Jesus loved to party. You know what he was giving up? Read it. Everywhere Jesus went, he was in a party. You know what he was giving up? A life full of parties. You know what else he was giving up? He was giving up friends that he loved and family that he loved, his own mother that he loved. You know what else he was giving up? All the meals he was going to eat, all the good times he was going to have. He was giving up the dream for marriage. You know what he was giving up? The dream for kids and grandkids. He gave up all of that in that moment. He was giving it all up. He was a young guy, and he gave it all up, all of it. And he trusted God that what he gave up was right. And this caught my attention. In Matthew 26, 44, it says, so he left them and went away once more. That's not what it says in the Greek. You know what it says in the Greek? He let go of the disciples. Now, this Greek word is a Greek word, aphemy, and it means let go. Let go. So uh, it's the word we use for forgiveness. When you want to forgive somebody, you want them to let go. And there's a famous illustration here that went really bad on me one time where I put somebody in a headlock. If, if you've been around for a while, it didn't work so well. But I put them in a headlock, and I, I didn't really even squeeze. I just put them in a headlock. Anyway, but what, if somebody puts you in a headlock and they start choking you out, what do you want them to do? You want them to let go, right? You want them, you want them to say, you're, ah, I'm, I'm in a headlock. Oh, I'm choking. What do you want them to do? You want them to let go. Let go. That's what half of me is. Get half of me. Anyway, <laughs> there are ways I remember words. Get off of me. Get, get off of me. So off of me means to let go. And you know what it says literally in this passage? 
that Jesus let go of his disciples. Here he is praying, God, you got a plan. And his disciples went totally south on him, and he knew it. And he knew they were going to deny him, and he knew they were going to go south. He knew all of that. And you know what he had to do? He had to let go of the people he loved. Peace wouldn't come into his world until he let go of somebody he loved. And some of you, you have no peace in your life because you're still trying to control somebody instead of letting them go. Forgive them, let go of it, and let go. Second thing he did was he submitted to God's plan. Three times Jesus play, prayed, your will be done. Your will be done. Jesus found peace and made peace. Jesus found peace with himself because he knew he was submitting to God's will. And he found peace with God because he knew God loved him and had a plan for him. So he found peace with himself and he found peace with God, which is why he willingly and freely went to the cross and didn't resist it or fight it. Aren't you glad that Jesus found peace with God? regardless of the circumstances. And I just want to ask you a question. Who in your life is going to be blessed if you will find peace with God to make it through the circumstances that you struggle with? So Job twenty-two twenty-one: submit to God and be at peace with him. That's the core of this entire message today. Submit to God, be at peace with him. So let's say you're an employee or employer. I'm a business owner. And being a business owner, I have two people I can hire. I've got two people working for me. Let's just say I hired them, two people working for me. One of them says, I want to do the bare minimum I can to stay employed long enough to get my benefits and my retirement. I'm going to do the bare minimum. When the boss isn't looking, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do. And then you get another employee, when they come in, they say, you know what, I want to do my best. I want this company to be the best because when this company succeeds, I succeed. Which one are you going to be at peace with? Huh? The second. How about this one? You have two students. One says, what's the least I can do and still graduate? <laughs> I don't care about learning anything. Can I just make it through this and get out? And then you got a second student that says, you know what? I want to learn all this stuff because I'm going to use it the rest of my life, and I'm going to be better because I learned it. Which one do you think is going to have more peace with their instructor? The second one. How about this? You have two parents. What's the least I can do to keep these kids alive until they're 18 and out of my house? <laughs> or the one that says, you know what? I want to invest in these kids to make them into the godly adults God made them to be. Which one do you think is going to have the most peace with God? Of course, the second one. Which one do you think is going to have the most peace with himself? Now, now, if you parent like that, one in godly living, you're going to have a lot of tension on the outside, but at least in your heart, you're going to know you did your best. Right? If you're an employee like that, you may have tension with other employees that are mad at you that you actually show up for work. <laughs> or you ruin the bell curve. Or whatever it is. But I want to ask you a question. Do you want to be the kind of person that you just get through life? Or do you want to be the person that you go through life blessing everybody around you? Peace comes when you make peace with you and with God. So we need to embrace this motivational question. If you want to have peace with Jesus, here's your motivational question. Is your question about life, is relationship with God, is it what can I get away with? Or is it what pleases God? 
Is it what can I get away with and still get to heaven? Or is it what pleases God? Because as long as you're living a life of what can I get away with, you will always be crossways with yourself and crossways with God, and you will never, ever, ever have peace. Because I hate to tell you this, you're going to have trouble no matter what. And trouble out here can't be stopped. The trouble in here can. Listen, I'm not some super perfect dude standing up here preaching you this pious, holy message about how you should live your life. I'm a guy that struggles with this every single day. And you and I wake up in the morning and we have a choice. Are we going to choose today what brings peace with God? Are we going to choose today what puts us at odds with ourselves and with God? It's your choice. It's your choice. It's your choice. So Jesus said, my peace I leave you, not as the world gives. As a matter of fact, he said in another place, the peace he gives can't be taken away from you. Some of you aren't in peace right now. Because you're fighting God to see what you can get away with rather than how close you can live to what he said is true. I just want to invite you. Come on. Let's have peace with God, ourselves, and the body of Christ. We have communion. I'm going to invite you to grab communion. If you didn't get one, I believe we got some people with extras that are willing to pass it out. Who has the gluten-free option? I got the word right this time. Who has a gluten-free option? You do? So if you want a gluten-free, talk to this guy back here. If you need a communion element, just lift up your hand, catch their eye. They'll make sure they get you. We're going to celebrate communion today. And I thought of a dozen different ways to do this, and I didn't like any of them, so we're just going to do it, all right? This piece of bread we hold represents the body of Christ, which was broken for us. And it was his brokenness that purchased our freedom. And he said... God, I don't want to die. I don't want to make the sacrifice. I want to hang out. I want to get married and have kids. I want to hang out and attend parties, and I want to grow old and see my grandkids. And God says, no, you're going to die. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Jesus, thank you that you lived at peace with yourself and God because you're peace purchases our peace. Let's partake the bread together. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood which is given for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We remember today that Jesus died so that we could be free. And we thank you that there's a new covenant of peace with you, Father God. And if we are in this place and we're within this space this morning and we're still living a little crossways against you, I pray that every person in this room, before they drink this cup, they would say, Jesus, I repent of my wrong thinking.
I repent of my excuses. I repent of my defense of my own stupidity. And I submit to your eternal wisdom. And I know that in submitting to you, that is where life is. Amen. Let's partake together. I asked the band to play a song. We're going to sing a song here at the end. Would you stand to your feet? Please don't leave. Give us a couple of minutes. Let's sing this song together. Here we go.